All right, how are we all doing out there this morning? We're awake. It's a good day to be in God's house together as a church family. And so I'm so glad you're here. My name is Walter. I'm the teaching and small groups minister. And we as a church are going on a Bible reading journey. We've been in Genesis and Exodus. We're flipping the page to Leviticus this week. And God's people were excited. Leviticus. Yeah. All right. All right. That's good. You're there. I'm getting there too. I'm getting there. And today is all about Leviticus. Now it's at this point in our Bible reading journey, if I'm doing like a, a through the Bible in a year, that I always like brace myself. Because man, Genesis and Exodus, there's some fun stuff in there. There's creation account, there's the flood, Tower of Babel. You've got Abraham's family and, and all of the stuff that happens with his kids and grandkids. You got Exodus, and then you've got the the Ten Plagues, and Moses, and the Red Sea, all of this stuff, which is really engaging, really interesting to read. And then you flip the page to Leviticus, and it's hard to pay attention. Anybody else struggle with that a little bit? Paying attention in Leviticus. Well, we're going to talk about that today, that it's important for us to pay attention, because these next few verses, these next few books are just as much part of God's Word as everything else we've read before this and as of everything else we'll be reading after. When I get to this point in my yearly reading plan, I'm like, okay, I just got to buckle down and, and get through this because Josh was on the horizon and judges and, and it gets interesting again. But you know, there's a verse that, that many of us learned at maybe church camp or Sunday school. It's in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that all Scripture is, is God-breathed, profitable for teaching and rebuke, correcting, instruction, and training in righteousness. I'm butchering my recitation there a little bit. But when Paul writes those words to his protege, Timothy, he, he's writing those. He's not writing those about this, actually. I, I don't know if you know that. He's not writing about this. He's writing about, about this, about this half of our Bible. When Paul wrote those words that all Scripture is God-breathed, the New Testament didn't exist like we know it. And so if Paul thought that, that this portion of our Bible, including Leviticus, was profitable for teaching and correction and training and, and righteousness and rebuke, if he said that this was God-breathed, inspired Scripture, well, we better pay attention as a people of God. And so that's what we're doing today. We are digging into Leviticus. And over the next few weeks, know that this isn't just flyover country This isn't just some boring history that we can disregard or some weird customs that we don't have to pay attention to. This is God's Word. This is God's Word just as much as the Gospels, as much as the rest of the New Testament. And it's on us to approach this material with humility, with expectancy, and taking a posture of looking toward what God is going to do, what He's going to teach us. So that's where we're going today. That's where we're going for the next few weeks, diving into Leviticus. Leviticus is all about holiness, what it means to be holy, very specific, practical instructions for how to live as God's holy people. And as God's holy people today, we are called to be holy as well. But I don't know that we're always on the same page about what that word means, that word holiness. You know, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1 14 tells us this. 14, 15, and 16 tells us this. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. All right. Peter tells followers of Jesus, that includes us, to be holy That's cool and all, but again, what does that word mean? 
Because when we talk about this word, sometimes outside of the church or even inside of the church, we, we don't necessarily have a clear definition, a clear idea of just what it looks like to be holy people. When you hear that word, what, what comes to your mind? Is it something vaguely spiritual? Is it like, okay, holy Bible? You know, lots of our Bibles say holy Bible. Or is it a word reserved just for God? God is holy. How can people possibly be holy? If God, is, if God gives us this command, be holy as I am holy, well, we're like, okay, God is holy, obviously, but how can we just be holy? How can we intrinsically be holy people? Well, that's where we're, we're journeying today. That's what we're doing. We're going to define holiness. We're going to look at Leviticus and see what God can teach us through the first chapter of this really intriguing, sometimes misunderstood book. And so, as we jump into Leviticus today, turn with me to Exodus 40. Exodus 40. We're reading Leviticus, but we're going to start in Exodus. So join me, Exodus 40, uh, verse 34. Here we go. Then the cloud t- covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. And then the cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. All right, we're still going to talk about Leviticus. I know you can't wait, but on our way there, we've got to talk about Exodus. So Leviticus is just a continuation of the Exodus story. And as we read this week, we're going to be turning the page from Exodus. I think it's on Friday or Saturday that Saturday that we turn into Leviticus, and, and we'll all be reading these, these laws and these rules and regulations, but you have to realize that these laws and rules and regulations are in the context of an ongoing story. And so at the end of the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are constructing this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, and it's going to be placed right in the middle of their camp. And so they spend all of this time and they, they get all of these instructions for how to make it happen from God. And, and so then they, they finish up in chapter 40. They complete the tabernacle. It's a big deal. And then God's glory fills the tabernacle. And that's a big deal because God, the holy creator of the entire universe, has now come to dwell with his people. And so this great cloud settles down on the tent and the glory of the Lord fills it. And it was such an overwhelming phenomenon that Moses, who you have to think was in the tabernacle daily before this, helping get it ready, overseeing the work that was happening there, making sure the people were following God's specifications as they constructed it. Moses approaches the tabernacle. He can no longer go in because God is absolutely holy. And his holiness means he is set apart. He is completely other, completely God, transcendent, above us, divine. He is so far beyond us that we created humans, couldn't approach him, could not even stand or exist in his presence under our own power. God is just that other, different, powerful. Theologians have a word for this. They call it God's transcendence. God's transcendence. God is so far above us that we would be unable to even talk to him or comprehend him in any way if he had not taken that step of of reaching out and and meeting us. There was a a monk back in the 
11th century, a Benedictine monk named Anselm, and he had this this theory on explaining why God exists. And he described God in his theory as that than which no greater can be conceived. And what he meant by that is God is the greatest possible being, and you cannot even imagine a being greater than God because if you imagine a being greater than God, by definition, that being would be God. And maybe to our ears that sounds like circular logic, but it points to the fact that God is the greatest possible being to ever have existed. Before time, after time, outside of, of, human cre- or outside of God's creation, God is self-existent. He is the ultimate power, the supreme God. And so that God had now come to dwell with his people. And in Exodus 40, as God's glory fills the tabernacle, it's this tent in the middle of the entire Israelite camp, it is a very big deal. Because if God has moved into your neighborhood, if this holy, transcendent, completely other God has moved in next door to you, well then, you better figure figure out how to live. And so, God gives these instructions to help his people figure that out. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or from your flock of sheep and goats. One of the things this book wastes no time in doing is getting to the point. Like God calls to Moses in verse 1 and in verse 2, he's already giving him instructions. In fact, the, the, the title for this book in Hebrew is, And He Called, as God just calls to Moses out of the tent and, uh, and, and gives him these instructions for what it, it looks like for people to live in his presence, in the presence of a holy God. And so God's instructions continue on. Verse 3, If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so you may be accepted by the Lord Lay your hand on the animal's head, and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Then slaughter the young bull in the Lord's presence, and Aaron's sons, the priests, will present the animal's blood by splattering it against all the sides of the altar that stands at the entrance to the tabernacle. And then skin the animal and cut it to pieces. The sons of Aaron and the priests will build a wood fire on the altar They will arrange the pieces of the offering, including the head and the fat, on the wood burning on the altar. But the internal organs and the legs must first be washed with water. And then the priest will burn the entire sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. All right, this is where things start getting weird for us, at least as Americans. Because... We are so far removed from any of this, our our food even. It comes to us in neatly packaged containers that almost never resemble the the animal or the plant even from which they were taken. Unless you're a hunter or a hobby homesteader, you've probably never butchered anything. Most of us like to eat meat, most of us, not all of us, but man, we don't want to think about where it comes from. And to be honest, we like to keep it that way. We like to eat it, don't tell me how it gets here. And so that makes it very difficult for us to to relate to what happens in the first seven chapters of Leviticus because what's with all the killing? Why does this have to be so specific and so seemingly gruesome to us? What's with all the blood? 
Why would God consider any of this, what does he say, a a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Well, let's keep reading and see if we can figure that out. Verse 10, if the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the flock, it may either be a sheep or a goat, but it must be a male with no defects. Slaughter the animal on the north side of the altar in the Lord's presence, and Aaron's sons, the priests, will splatter its blood against all the sides of the altar. Then cut the animal into pieces, and the priest will arrange the pieces of the offering, including the head and the fat, on the wood burning on the altar. But the internal organs and the legs must first be washed with water. And then the priest will burn the entire sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. All right, this is very familiar, very similar to what just came before it. If verses 3 through 9 were all about how to offer cows or, or bulls specifically as a sacrifice, then these next verses are all about how to offer sheep and goats, and they deal with the same slaughter and the, the rituals around them. And, and in fact, not only is this section similar to the preceding section, but it's very similar to what follows. So let's read that and see if we can learn something from those verses. Verse 14. If you present a bird as a burnt offering to the Lord, choose either a turtle dove or a young pigeon. The priest will take the bird to the altar and wring off its head and, and burn it on the altar. But first he must drain his blood against the side of the altar, and the priest must also remove the crop and the feathers and throw them in the ashes on the east side of the altar. Then, grasping the bird by its wings, the priest will tear the bird open, but without tearing it apart, and then he will burn it as a burnt offering on the wood burning on the altar. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We're getting a little repetitious here. We got birds now. And if you're still wondering what's the point, you're probably in good company this morning. Because with so much of what happens in Leviticus, we're, we read it and then we're left just like scratching our heads. God, I don't understand. How does this matter? Why does this matter to you? And how can this be a special gift, a pleasing aroma? But I think some of that comes down to the fact that none of us are living in tents out in an arid wilderness. And we all have refrigerators and freezers and We're not heading to a new land to live lives caring for flocks and herds and tending our our vineyards and farms. And so these instructions in Leviticus, both in the beginning here when it comes to burnt offerings and sacrifices, but then later on when it comes to things like what kind of clothing to wear and what foods to eat and how to plant our fields and even to constructing our houses, all of these things don't necessarily have a lot of immediate relevance for you and for me today. Because the world that we live in is so different from a a Mediterranean agrarian society. And so I think when it comes to these laws, a lot of times we have this feeling that Leviticus is is too impractical for us. It's too impractical. Like what in here can we read and take away and then apply to our lives? It just feels too impractical. But I heard recently... I was at a retreat and I heard someone say this. The problem for us with Leviticus is not that it's too impractical. But the problem for us with Leviticus is that it's too practical. Too practical. These instructions are so specific, so, so dialed into exactly what was going on in the Israelites' lives. And, and while some of the instructions, there are some common, broad-reaching commands like, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes that one, and that one's in Leviticus 19. Most of this stuff is God saying, 
be holy as I am holy, and then God going into very minute detail about just what it looked like for the Israelites in that time and in that place to be holy, to be set apart. And so by doing these very specific things in the way that God was calling them to do them, they would become this royal priesthood, this chosen holy nation, and they would fulfill God's role for them. They would live in a way that was very different from the way that the outsiders, the rest of the world, was living. But the problem for you and me still stands, and that's that in Leviticus, we get lost in the weeds. We read these things, and we focus on you know, the foreign or the grotesque. Did God really just command his people to rip a bird apart by its wings? Well, he did. Did God say, don't rip it all the way in half, but stop, stop before it's completely separated? Okay, that, that's tough. That's strange stuff. Did God really just tell his, his, his people later on to not have sex with their slaves? You would think that doesn't need to be said. Did God really say these people couldn't mix two kinds of materials together in one fabric because then this shirt that I'm wearing is uh, not according to God's law? Did he really care all that much about how they cut their hair? We spend our time pondering some of this stuff and getting confused by it and then saying, well, I don't understand any of it. And then we skim through and we kind of ignore or maybe get bored with Leviticus. And when we do that, we miss the heart of what God is doing here, what God is telling his people to do. Because with these instructions, God was carefully defining for the Israelites what it looked like for them in that day, in that time, in that place to be holy, to be different from the world around them. God had called them to be a holy people just as he was holy. And for the Israelites back then, as well as for us today, to be holy is to be set apart. To be holy is to be set apart. And so, so this morning, I've got a question for you to ponder. I want you to be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell your neighbor, whoever's sitting beside you, but, but if you're honest with yourself today, completely honest, how holy have you been living? How set apart is your life? Is the way that you've been living actually distinct in some way from the lives of the non-Christians around you? And look, I know in a, in a church we're, we're fond of, of saying things like, it's not about the religion, it's about the relationship, because we don't want to get lost in all the rules and the guidelines, and, and that's admirable. It is about a relationship with, with Jesus. It's about knowing God and being known by Him, and, and yet... God clearly has guidelines in his scriptures that apply directly to us. Many things in the New Testament written to followers of Jesus talk about living and walking in step with the Spirit or walking according to the the attitudes and the desires of our sinful nature. And all of this stuff, again, begs the question, how set apart are you? You know, in church we talk about being distinct sometimes and we Talk about how Christians should stick out or stand out and, you know, we feel good about it. When I was uh, in youth group, we had this illustration, you shouldn't go with the flow. Go against the flow. You know, you, you're like a fish swimming upstream while everybody's going the opposite way. And so we talk about that's the way we should live. But I, I'm not so sure we do much more than talk about it and think warm thoughts about going against the flow. And so again, take a moment to answer this question and be honest with yourself. Does your life look different in any meaningful way? 
from the average non-Christian person of your social and economic flavor. Another way to maybe put this is, is your life more American or is your life more Christian? There should be a difference there. And seriously, be honest with yourself because I think we say we're different, but I, I don't know where we're different too often. Too often I, I wonder, what exactly are you doing that makes you different? In what ways does your life look different? What specific things do you do every morning or every evening that set you apart? What about the way that you spend your free time or the food you eat or the media you consume or the conversations that you have? What makes you different? Is there anything? God calls his, his followers to be holy, to be set apart, and Jesus calls his followers to be the light of the world, a city on a hilltop, a thing that can be seen for miles around, something that is different on the landscape. It sticks out. Do you stick out? Are you that light on a lampstand? One of the core functions of God's people is to be separate, to be set apart. Not just to feel good about ourselves and think that we're better than others. No, it's to show others what it looks like to follow Jesus and then thereby drawing others into God's kingdom. And so are we as the people of God doing that? Or are we just fooling ourselves? I wonder sometimes. Hey, if there's a difference in your life and it's discernible and others can tell you're different, then God will be glorified and you'll please Jesus as you show Him that you love Him by being obedient to Him. And, you know, if you get accused of coming across as holier than thou, well, maybe you've got an attitude adjustment to make and you should be more humble instead of judgmental. But seriously, church, don't let outsiders' critiques of how we live our lives affect how we live our lives because we answer to one person jesus christ our king we don't answer to outsiders and so our lives should be distinct they should be holy and set apart and that might make others have questions or critiques and don't take those things personally use them as an opportunity opportunity to say hey this is why i do some things this is why i don't do other things because i serve a risen savior So that's if there is a difference, if you're living that holy life. If you're not living that holy life, if you can't point to the ways in which you are different than everybody else you know who's not a Christian, well, you've got some work to do. And it starts in your heart. It starts with a a shift, an adjustment. It starts with leaning into that relationship that you have with God and recognizing His holiness And the incredible gift of grace that he's given you. And being thankful for that. It begins in your heart. That work does. But man, it's going to come out in your behavior. It's going to come out in how you you go about your life. The priorities you have. How you spend your time. How you relate to your kids and your parents and your coworkers. How you spend your money. How you work and walk through your neighborhood. The whole purpose of your life will be different. Because you're a holy person. And you are called to holiness. To be holy as God is holy. Look, God's instructions to the Israelites in Leviticus were so hyper-practical to them. Very specific, designed to result in very specific, very defined behaviors to demonstrate that they were God's people. And God's 
intention, His guidelines for you and me should function the same way today. Very specific things that we should do, and then specific things that we shouldn't do. Lots of freedom in between, but are you living in step, walking in step with the Spirit, and seeing God grow those behaviors, those attitudes? Are you living that holy life? When you come to Jesus, it's going to result in some specific life change. It should. Things will have to be different than your life apart from Jesus. Because you have been called to be holy by a holy God, and to be holy is to be set apart. Now we're going to continue this journey for the next couple weeks. Wally's going to be talking about the significance of blood next week, which is different. It's different than you and I. When we read this, we get grossed out. And instead, the way that God and his people understand the significance of blood is, is way different. And so I hope you'll come back for that. It'll be a great sermon next week. And then in two weeks, I'm going to talk about the, some of the weird laws that are in Leviticus. Some of the mixtures, like why does God care about the clothing or why does he care about the food that the people eat? What, what's the significance of that? But today and this week, it's really a week of introspection. It's a chance for you to walk out of here and, and ask yourself some hard questions. In what ways is my life demonstrating that I know Jesus? And in what ways is it not? And what may I need to change? How do I get to the point of living that holy, that set-apart life? And so as you do that this morning, we'll have a chance to respond in just a minute. But as you do that, as you prepare to do that, I want to pray for you. And so will you join me in prayer today? God, we know that you are holy. And Father, that holiness is, is hard for us to comprehend. And sometimes, in some ways, because you're just so far beyond what we can possibly comprehend. God, as Paul says, now we know in part, but then we will know fully. We, Father, look forward to that day where we exist in your presence, living with you as, as the new Jerusalem comes back. And we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, God, I pray that... That as we go from this place, as we move into what's next, that God, you would lay on our hearts areas in which maybe we are not living holy lives. Convict us of sin, Father. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move us into areas where we can, we can truly step out and live and, and be this, this city on a hill. God, help us to live holy, set-apart lives so that our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, everybody that we know will know that we follow Jesus and will be attracted to your Son. Holy Spirit, convict us this week. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. At this point in our service, we respond to God. We respond by worshiping in a number of different ways. We'll be singing a couple songs telling God how holy he is and, and reminding ourselves and our hearts how holy God is. We'll also have a chance in a little bit to give back, to be generous, because God has given us so much. That's an act of worship in, in and of itself. And we, in a moment too, will get a chance while we sing to share the Lord's Supper. The juice and the bread are at the tables around the room. We invite you to come as we sing and, and remind yourself that the, the bread and the juice represent Jesus' body and blood sacrifice for you and for me. Jesus was the ultimate example of living this holy, this set-apart life like no other. 
a life that stuck out. In fact, got him into so much trouble that he was arrested by the authorities and was crucified. But it was all part of God's plan, a plan to have this perfect sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect, so we no longer have to continue the sacrificial system that's in the Torah, that's in Leviticus. But instead, we have a sacrifice once and for all in Jesus Christ. And he has made us right with God. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we worship together, remind yourself and thank God for his perfect gift that is found only in Jesus Christ. And now would you stand and worship with us?